Hello, everyone, and welcome to History's Trainwrecks. It occurred to me that we've been doing quite a lot of talking about George Washington in this series, or more accurately, talking around George. So I thought it would be a good time to stop and focus on the man himself and delve into what made him so darn indispensable. I didn't exactly have a George Washington episode, but I knew someone who did. If you've been listening for a while, you know that I am a huge fan of the Drinks with Great Minds in History podcast. The show is not only lots of fun to listen to, but the host, Mr. DGMH, otherwise known as Zach Tobacco, has a historical insight that I truly admire. His approach to his great minds in history is unique, and he comes up with brilliant revelations about these historical figures that I had never before considered. It's a great show, and if you aren't already subscribed to it, you should be. If it helps, I can tell you that Drinks with Great Minds in History is the only history podcast that Mrs. History's Trainwrecks listens to with all that that implies. Mr. DGMH was kind enough to lend me his George Washington episode to drop into our feed this week. Fair warning, Zach does tend to use the occasional F-bomb in his episodes, but he always does it in the proper context. If my history professors had used more profanity, I might not have bombed that final exam on the Thirty Years' War. I hope you enjoy Great Mind in History, George Washington. Hello, Great Minds. It's Tuesday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History as we get ready to cover our second great mind, George Washington, founder of us. So welcome to the show, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Mr. DGMH, otherwise known as Zach DeBacco. And on this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, we are covering one of the most influential figures in American history who literally laid the political foundations of the USA, George Washington. I mean, this guy answered just about every question, fought every battle that one could in building a new republic, and he proved to be quite the model for a good president, calm and resolute, cautious but strong. G.W. was born in 1732 and basically served his country almost nonstop from the 1740s to his death in 1799. He served as America's first president under the U.S. Constitution from 1789 to 1797 when he finally retired from public service to go find that fig tree or whatever the fuck the Hamilton lyric is. Truth is, he actually went home and started brewing beer and whiskey, and that makes him a truly special DGMH great mind. Now, as Americans, we see Washington as a symbol of freedom. We know him to be our greatest hero. But can George Washington possibly live up to the idea that Americans have built him up to be? I mean, we interact with the symbol that is George Washington daily, whether you're buying a beer, tipping your waitresses, which you fucking should, cleaning the couch, or getting a shopping cart at Aldi, Washington is part of every American's life. So what makes Washington so great? It's a really interesting question, one I thought would be simple to answer, but I was absolutely fucking wrong. Not really surprising, but I am not the only person to wonder this. My research over time took me to countless videos, fellow podcasters, and text that praised or paid homage to the man, the general, and the president. But what's the answer? Does Washington fit into the Never Meet Your Heroes category, or is he truly everything we want him to be and more? In the end, we must ask ourselves exactly what makes Washington so great. Better yet, which Washington was great, the man, the general, or the president? A little unsure at this point, but the answer to that question undoubtedly starts in Virginia. Now, I'm not going to sit here and meander over every minute detail about Washington's choice in teeth or his sordid past as an amateur lumberjack. I am just focused on figuring out if George is as great as the image of Washington in our heads. 
I'm also not going to spend a bunch of time bashing Washington for being a stereotypical 17th century Virginian. The man owned slaves. We will save that, of course, for the piece of shit curve. But on that note, most of my sources point to the fact that he actually owned more slaves, enslaved more Africans than any other president. I won't for one second act like this was okay, nor defend the man-of-his-time argument. I will point out that Washington was, however, a product of a very different time and a very different Virginia, in which slavery was common practice among the landed southern elite. In some cases, laws actually restricted landowners from outright freeing their slaves, which Washington did for nearly all those that he enslaved at his death. In a sense, Washington better than most represents the shortcomings of American independence, that the liberty and freedom he was fighting for was not for everyone. Again, not justifying the action, just pointing out the reality. Many of the men who built this great nation owned other human beings. They enslaved Africans. The real truth is this, something every student in my history class has to learn at some point. Sometimes, history fucking sucks. I'm not defending Washington's ownership of slaves at fucking all, but I won't be spending my whole time tearing him down for it either. And before I get criticized for that, actually fuck it. You can criticize me all you want, but let's not forget I'm just here to tell George's story. So let's save all that POS talk for the end of the episode. I should note, this is another DGMH remastering, and, and in the original recording of this episode, which had far too few fucks and atrocious audio, I mean it literally sounded like I was rocking back and forth in a chair. On that episode, I raised a glass of Flying Fox's Winter Vermouth out of Afton, Virginia. Sadly, most of you will never get to try this delicious drink that was gifted to me by my Virginian neighbor, aka the neighbor, but I still say it may just be worth a trip to Virginia. Especially if you're already on your way to Mount Vernon or Monticello, it's kind of in between the two. Like me, you probably thought vermouth was the nasty stuff that goes into a martini glass before the actual martini. Or more recently, the second of three components of a Negroni, Spagliato with Prosecco. But Flying Fox's winter vermouth is more like a semi-sweet red wine, and it is complemented beautifully again with an orange. At 18% alcohol, this drink brings just the right kick to have a good time. But since this is the remastering of the original recording, I figured I would bring a new drink and maybe some new facts to the table. As it turns out, Washington was a bit of a brewer himself, and the man loved a porter. Side note, I do not, and I did not have any, so tonight I am actually just drinking a Yingling Light. As a surprisingly large part of Washington's story is tied to my home state of Pennsylvania, which, if you're a longtime listener to the show, have come to know that that is the home of Yingling Brewing, America's oldest brewery in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. So let's get to it. George Washington, a man, a great mind, a founder, who, according to historian Joseph J. Ellis, was the foundingest father of them all. You had shitty teeth and purposely styled your reddish hair white to look more like a randy 80-year-old man. But you helped shape one of the freest places on the face of the earth and selfishly committed your life to public service for millions of people you would never get to know or meet. George Washington sits among the revolutionary great minds in a pantheon of American untouchables that many in my country dare to ever question. Well, we are going to go ahead and raise a fucking question or two. Was he great? Absolutely. Was he the greatest? We shall see. And really, in the end, that is for you to decide. But first... It's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. George Washington was born in Pope's Creek in the Virginia Colony and was the first of six children born to Augustine and Mary Ball Washington, Augustine's second wife. 
His father was a local justice of the peace, even holding other prominent positions in local politics. In 1743, when Augustine died, his properties, it seems, were passed to his oldest sons of each of his marriages, that is, George and his half-brother Lawrence, whose story I think is worth examining in a little bonus moment for Patreon supporters, hopefully by the end of the month, but sometime down the road for sure. For now, let it suffice to say Lawrence died in 1752, and his Mount Vernon estate passed to George. I suppose then we should start talking about George now that he has Mount Vernon, is of age, and pretty much has to start doing some things on his path to greatness. So for us, Washington's story will begin on the eve of what is known as the French and Indian War. Actually, it's the fourth French and Indian War, but the only one that really gets the name. Now all of these wars, save the last, were all conflicts that stemmed from Europe and trickled to the American colonies, and had one unique commonality. Beavers, and down the beaver hole we go. Too many American wars were tied to this majestic, beautiful creature, but the fourth war was actually the only one to be started in what would become the United States. This fourth and final French and Indian War grew into a global conflict known most commonly as the Seven Years' War, a war another great mind, Winston Churchill, referred to as the First World War. But where does Washington come into this? Simple, he pretty much started the whole damn thing. I'm not going to sit here though and paint a picture of an idiotic Washington running around the Ohio River Valley and foolishly encountering the French and losing at Fort Necessity. Is that kind of true? Sure. But I will tell you this, that in 1753, both Britain and France had laid claim to the same strip of land along the Ohio River Valley. And the French had gone about securing that claim the way they always had. Make friends with the native population and build some forts. And the governor of Virginia, Robert Dinwiddie, sent Washington to the area to assert and secure British and really Virginian actions access to those lands. Now I must take a minute to really address the area in question, where the Ohio and Allegheny Rivers meet, Pittsburgh, where the French had established a fortification named Fort Duquesne. Why, you ask? Because one, it's important, and two, I need to give a shout out to all my family, friends, and listeners in the Pittsburgh area that are taking the time to tune in each week, and also to my graduate alma mater, Duquesne University. Moving back to Washington, a 22-year-old George appeared to be in over his head when, after a brief encounter with a French force and, of course, a massacre, he faced an embarrassing defeat at the famous Fort Necessity, resulting in his surrender in 1754. Following this, he would return to his estate at Mount Vernon, but history wasn't quite done with Washington just yet, as he would be there when General Edward Braddock marched into a massacre along the Mahongahela. Mahongahela? I fucking lived there. Along the Mahong... Mahong... Why the fuck? Mm. Along the Monongahela River. To Washington's credit, he managed to rally and save hundreds of men from the slaughter, all while being sick with dysentery. This demonstrated, for the, this demonstrated for the first of many times Washington's ability to lead a swift, effective retreat, something that might just come in handy down the road. Washington's role in the war after 1755 was limited, but he was part of the expedition that saw the capture of Fort Duquesne under the command of General John Forbes. At this famous battle, Washington showed true heroism, as the French burned down the fort and ran away, but from the ashes of Fort Duquesne rose Fort Pitt. I gotta say, so far Washington isn't looking that great, but neither was I in my 20s, so let's give the guy a chance. Now Washington wasn't a big name of the revolutionary movement like the Adamses of Bo Adamses Adams like the Adams family of Boston or even other Virginians like Patrick Henry, but to my surprise, Washington was actually right there the whole time with them supporting non-importation, leading protest, and representing his colony as a quiet voice and stern figure against British tyranny. But in 1775 at the Continental Congress, that would all change when Sam and John Adams put forth a motion to create a Continental Army with George Washington, a veteran soldier, at its helm. Upon accepting the command, Washington beautifully remarked, but lest some unlucky event should happen unfavorable to my reputation, 
invitation, I beg it may be remembered by every gentleman in the room that I this day declare with the utmost sincerity, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. Washington wasn't the perfect man for the job, but I am not sure that there really was one. Others wanted the glory of leading the revolution and would attempt to steal Washington's position throughout the course of the war, including, but not limited to, Charles Lee and Horatio, I'm a dumbass coward, Gates. And to that, both of those men were shit generals too. Nonetheless, Washington accepted the position he clearly wanted, as he showed up to just about every meeting of the Continental Congress in military dress. Now, no part of this story will simultaneously bolster and tarnish Washington's resume more so than his command of the Continental Army in the American War of Independence. To achieve our goals to assess his greatness, we are going to look at Washington's successes and shortcomings kind of separately as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. And as his early leadership showed great promise, I suppose we should start with his successes, beginning in Boston. After the brothers William and Richard Howe successfully occupied Boston in May of 1775, the Continental Army had its chance to shine at Bunker Hill in June. Now, it was actually called Breed's Hill, but who the hell really cares? After this small success, Washington took command of the Continental Army in July and quickly laid siege to Boston. Finally reinforced with artillery that Henry Knox famously moved from the recently captured Fort Ticonderoga, Washington was able to completely surround Howe's forces in Boston. This led Howe to enact Britain's most successful strategy in the war, retreat to the sea. The British Royal Navy was indeed Britain's greatest advantage, but that raises the question, was Washington ours? Now, like I said, we aren't necessarily going to look at every single thing in exact chronological order, but instead by success and shortcoming. Washington's next great success came after a mess of failures in New York. But it was after his defeats that Washington tended to show the most promise. Having retreated across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania, which I know if you think about maps doesn't make a whole lot of fucking sense, but just trust me on it, Washington faced his own rock and a hard place situation, the British on one side and desertion on the other. So, Washington made one of the most daring decisions of the war as he led his men across the frozen Delaware River back into New Jersey to launch his successful Trenton and Princeton campaigns. It was here on Christmas Day that he engaged an unsuspecting garrison of Hessian mercenaries at Trenton. A day later, more success at Princeton breathed new hope into Washington's forces and independence as a whole. Sadly, I don't have time, nor do I really want, to cover the ins and outs of each battle. It's not really my thing, and I'm not a military historian by any means, so when I say sadly, I really just mean maybe for you. Moving onward to his next success, we go to Pennsylvania shortly after the British capture of Philadelphia. By- oh my god, we're only a fourth way down- Two things worth noting, by 1777 the British had two large armies in America, one marching south from Canada toward their demise at Saratoga and another under the command of Howie and the Boys in New York City. Sticking to Washington's end of the story, because as I screamed to my students, Washington wasn't at Saratoga, William Howe took his forces and sailed south in one of the most pointless moves of the war to capture Philadelphia. Makes sense, right? Capture the enemy capital and the war's over, but that's not how it worked, at least not this time. Congress nor Washington cared much about the loss of their wartime capital. Which brings me to my second point. By 1777, Washington was emerging as a symbol of stability and unity in the revolution. As long as Washington and the Continental Army was out they're fighting on, the dream of independence was still at the very least alive. One of Washington's most famous success stories has always been his winter at Valley Forge. It was here during the harsh winter of 1777, by the way, not as harsh as later winters, but the more famous by far, that Washington finally became the symbol of American freedom and independence, at least in the Army's eyes. While at Vault. Mm. Valley Forge. While at Valley Forge, Washington worked with a Prussian exile, Baron Friedrich von Steuben, to create an actual army out of what had always been a ragtag militia with a cool name. 
the Continental Army. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, the name could have been cooler. At Valley Forge, in the shitty Pennsylvania winter with which I am oh too familiar, Washington showed true strength as a leader, never leaving the army's side. He stayed with them in sickness and in health. He himself described the bleak conditions of the camp faced by his men, saying, quote, To see men without clothes to cover their nakedness, without blankets to lay on, without shoes by which their marches might be traced by the blood of their feet, is a mark of patriots and obedience, which, in my opinion, can scarce be paralleled. Beyond that, he made the bold, risky decision to inoculate his men against smallpox, which paid off, and he emerged from the winter quarters with a well-trained army that owed their survival to and was unquestionably loyal to him. And finally, the Continental Army knew not to shit where they eat. So good job, George, as it was during this time Washington and von Steuben created some semblance of discipline and order and standard procedures befit of an army. Also while at Valley Forge, he was forced to deal with the conspiring of the Conway Cabal as they attempted to undermine his position, even publishing a list of Washington's 45 greatest military blunders, which I will not be covering here. These stirrings and maneuverings, spearheaded by assholes like Thomas Mifflin, Horatio Amadamas Gates, and Thomas Conway, as well as others, caused a bit of doubt in Congress, especially after they visited the Valley Forge encampment. In a funny moment, the Marquis de Lafayette, one of my favorite great minds on the show, himself remarked his anger with Congress saying, quote, Stupid men who, without knowing a single word about war, undertake to judge you? But it was George's response that stifled the conspiracy as he basically published his own rebuttal to the account with a simple point. A calm, collected Washington published his own remarks to the press saying, quote, Whenever the public gets dissatisfied with my services or a person is found better qualified to answer her expectations, I shall quit the helm and retire to private life with as much content as ever the wearied pilgrim felt upon his safe arrival in the Holy Land. Were these words a sign of readiness to leave his post? Was he wavering? Hmm, I'm not sure. Was it an open criticism? I don't know. Maybe it was, as Ellis put it, a threat to expose and therefore destroy Mifflin and the Cabal's scheme. Either way, George effectively ensured with his remarks that he would gladly go and he should not be tested again. And he would not for the remainder of the war. A nice, smart move by GW. Turning again to Ellis, he addresses Washington's greatest attribute as a general when he addresses the, quote, most important event that didn't happen at Valley Forge, the dissolution of the Continental Army. And Washington deserves a good deal of credit for not only maintaining his numbers during this time, but actually bolstering them. And we are approaching the point where, as Ellis puts it, one of the dominant themes of Washington's early life had been the elemental fact that success followed survival. Washington and the army had survived, but how could he possibly lead them to success against the world's most powerful empire? We will talk more about that later, but in short, Washington and the army had become the cause, the ongoing symbol of independence, and as long as they were out there fighting, the cause was alive. But as is true for most wars and leaders, from Caesar to Napoleon to Stalin, every successful campaign was matched with equally devastating disasters, and Washington certainly had his share of military disasters. Aside from minor defeats like Brandywine and Germantown in Pennsylvania, both of which saw Washington command and lose more than a thousand men, his greatest military failure was the loss of New York City. But did Washington ever really stand a chance? Let me set the scene. Washington is sitting on an island with about 20,000 men, and reminder, we've jumped in the timeline a little bit. Now, I'm not sure if you caught what I'm trying to say there. Washington is on an island. When the British arrived with their massive fleet and 32,000 men, Washington should have ran as fast as he could. His decision to stand was based on a few factors. One, losing New York City could have had severe economic repercussions on the war effort. Two, Congress basically insisted that he at the very least try to hold New York. 
and three, Washington for some reason still believed that this was all going to end with one big battle for everything. He had not yet realized that a defensive strategy was the way to win this war. Having lost more than 2,000 men at the Battle of Long Island and 3,000 more as the British took Manhattan and Fort Washington, our pal George was able to retreat to Pennsylvania with only 3,000 men in his command. It took the miracle campaigns of Trenton and Princeton to revive America's faith in the cause and Congress's faith in George Washington. New York was certainly one of those moments where, as John Adams put it, in general, our generals just got outgeneraled. Well, let's wrap up this analysis of the War of Independence in a way that will get me crucified by every grandpa with a passion for history, great battles, and Washington in his final military success at the Battle of Yorktown. Now, this battle always leads me to make the bold, somewhat unpatriotic claim that the American War of Independence would be more accurately titled the French War for American Independence, at least from 1777 on. Because, oh you know, it's fucking true. To justify this claim, we return to Washington's homeland of Virginia. You see, it was in Virginia, specifically Yorktown, that British General Charles Cornwallis found himself stuck between the sea and the army for the first time unable to use the navy to retreat. After a slew of British victories from Georgia to North Carolina, Washington finally was able to send Nathaniel Greene, his true second in command, who, with the help of others like Daniel Morgan, defeated the deadly British general Bannister, yes, I said Bannister, Tarleton, and eventually pushed Cornwallis into retreat to Yorktown, Virginia, a place Washington hoped never to find himself. But while these events unfolded, where was Washington? Right where we left him, in a stalemate with the British forces in New York City, now under the command of British General Henry Clinton. But the situation had changed. Washington now had thousands of French soldiers under the command of the Comte de Rochambeau and wanted to launch an attack. But where? Washington believed wholeheartedly and foolishly that the battle for America would be fought in New York City. But after some strong convincing by Rochambeau and others, the decision was made to move troops in stealth and haste to Virginia to engage Cornwallis's forces at Yorktown. And I must note, the most crucial factor in all of this is that the French Navy was en route to the Chesapeake Bay. And as Washington moved south, the French fleet defeated the British Navy at the Battle of the Capes of the Chesapeake. This move prevented Cornwallis's retreat, allowing the Franco-American force of more than 16,000 strong to besiege a British force of only about 8,000 men. For weeks, Washington's forces bombarded the British until finally on October 19, 1781, when the British saw their world turned upside down and surrendered entirely to Washington. Well, actually, Cornwallis surrendered to Rochambeau, but that doesn't really help our story along. So we're going to go ahead and give that win to Washington. This would be the last major struggle of the war, but independence would not be secured for two more years with the signing of the Treaty of Paris of 1783. Washington's leadership and determination, along with his willingness to listen and adapt, made America's dreams of independence a reality. With victory finally achieved, Washington retired his command and hoped to return home to Mount Vernon, but history had other plans for our great mind. Let us now turn to the margins of Washington's story for a moment to look at some of the great women in his life who have existed in Washington's very large shadow for far too long. And I did say women. That's right, you get two. So Martha Washington seemed like the obvious choice, but upon researching I found dozens of influential yet marginalized figures of the revolutionary era, so many that I had to cover two. These two great women are from very different worlds, with two very different backgrounds whose stories unfolded in the midst of the American Revolutionary Crisis, and again in very different ways. The two I will be covering are in fact Martha Curtis Washington and Phyllis Wheatley. Starting with Martha Curtis Washington, a widower with a large estate in Virginia, who married our who married a 26-year-old Washington when she herself was 28, she pretty much is responsible for elevating George into the Virginian elite. 
Circumventing a rich backstory of a strong woman and a very loving manage, let us jump to her role in the revolution. Oh, what the hell, let's look into that background for a quick second. Born in 1731 in colonial Virginia to a Virginia planter, at the age of 18, she married into the wealthy Curtis family. And Martha Dandridge was now Martha Curtis. Her first husband, Daniel Park Curtis, was 22 years older than Martha. The pair had four children, and the two surviving children would be primarily raised by George Washington after Martha's first husband died in 1757. At least, they might have been. After her husband's death, running of her estates, now including more than 17,000 acres of tobacco plantation, fell to her, and she ran her estates independently and successfully. Enter George, who being from the same area likely knew the Curtises. What I didn't know is that George was not the only of Martha's quarters. Courtiers? People who were trying to, you know, marry her. Another, Charles Carter, who by the way was wealthier than Washington, sought after our now 27-year-old widowed Martha. But Martha chose George. Martha, like George, was an avid supporter of the Revolution, working closely with groups like the Daughters of Liberty. She supported non-importation and produced for the war effort. She is actually incredibly representative of most of the prominent military wives of the time, like Lucy Knox and Kitty Green. She traveled with her husband frequently throughout the war, often staying with the army in winter quarters. Martha was with Washington at Valley Forge, visiting with soldiers and boosting morale for the troops and Washington alike. In fact, as soldiers began to get hangry during the harsh winter, it was Martha that arrived from Mount Vernon with food and supplies. Beyond that, Martha is my country's inaugural first lady. She is also the only woman to appear as a primary figure on a piece of U.S. paper currency. By the end of the war, all of Martha's children would be deceased. The raising of her two youngest grandchildren, Eleanor and George, fell to her. After the war, George would use Martha's personal wealth to more than triple the size of Mount Vernon, and his own personal wealth and property. As First Lady, she worked tirelessly to establish a social presence for the new state, sometimes called the Republican Court. She organized and hosted state events and weekly receptions, and cautiously lived through her role as our First First Lady, self-aware of the fact that every step, every breath set a precedent for her successors. She lived with moderation and was likely an anchor not only for Washington but the nation. She served as a nurturing matriarch throughout this country's tumultuous infancy. Of course, like our great mind for today, Martha was a slave owner, and hers were the only enslaved Africans not to be freed upon George's death, just in case they were needed to take care of an aging Martha. It was, however, noted by Abigail Adams after a visit with the former First Lady that, quote, in the state in which they were left by the general to be free at her death, she did not feel as though her life was safe in their hands, many of whom would be told that it was in their interest to get rid of her. She therefore was advised to set them all free at the close of the year. And so she did. Sort of. In fact, she did not emancipate any of her own family's enslaved Africans during her lifetime. Her death led to most of the enslaved of her plantations to revert back to the Curtis estate. As a result, families were separated, husbands from wives, even children from their parents. For me, Martha has really become one of those questionable figures in the founding years. So yeah, let's move to our next moment, as I want to take a bit of a shift to another marginalized figure of Washington's story. Our next moment in the margins is a poet and abolitionist, Phyllis Wheatley. Like so many of the enslaved, little certain information exists about her childhood, but Phyllis Wheatley, as she came to be known, was likely born in Senegal, sold into slavery within her first decade of life, and arrived on the shores of Boston in 1761. Once in Boston, she was purchased by the Wheatley family, who taught her to read and write, receiving an astonishing degree 
degree of education throughout her captivity. She eventually traveled to London with the Wheatley family in hopes of getting her poems published, and the family freed her after the publication of her book of poems, called, quote, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral. Aside from being the first African-American woman to publish a book of poetry, a fact that even most of my English department colleagues are surprised to find out, her literary success aided in the British abolitionist movement that eventually led to the abolition of the slave trade, and later the institution of slavery in its entirety. And I'm sure it had an influence on the American abolition of the slave trade as well. Having been ripped from her family at age 8, she recalled in her poetry, I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Africa's fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. She, like millions of other poor souls, were forcibly transferred across the middle passage facing horrendous conditions on the slave ship. In this case, a ship called the Phyllis. She even wrote a poem in praise of General Washington's fight for freedom in the Revolutionary War. Sadly, Phyllis's situation declined after her marriage to a free black man named John Peters, who would find himself in debtor's prison, and left Phyllis in virtual poverty. One Wheatley descendant noted, quote, She was herself suffering for want of attention, for many comforts, and that greatest of all comforts in sickness, cleanliness. She was reduced to a condition too loathsome to describe, in a filthy apartment in an obscure part of the metropolis. The woman who had stood honored and respected in the presence of the wise and good was numbering the last hours of her life in a state of the most abject misery, surrounded by all the emblems of squalid poverty. It is sad to think that one of America's great poets of the revolutionary era would be reduced to such disregard. In this poverty, she lost two of her children. She was forced to take a job as a maid in a boarding house to provide for her surviving child. Sadly, in that same year, at age 31, Phyllis Wheatley died. Her last surviving child would die within the year. Her works expressed the horrors of the slave trade in literary form unlike that of her contemporaries Ignatius Sancho, Atoba Caguano, or even Aluda Equiano. Hers was a voice of reason for those that turned a blind eye to the realities of slavery. Her story was that of many, but her words alone were a cry for freedom unanswered in America's greatest hypocrisy, the Declaration of Independence. Well, let's jump back to George Washington, whose legacy as a general has left one wondering if he's really that great. Well, at least he isn't bad. The answer to that question of his greatness, his impact, his footprint can be found in his presidency, or more so his personality. To me, Washington stands strong as a perfect example of what a president should be, calm, resolved, and restrained, as well as wise and humble. I guess before we discuss that, though, we should probably highlight two moments in the kind of middle between the Revolution and the Presidency that showcase George a bit, the Newburgh Conspiracy and the Constitutional Convention. The Newburgh Conspiracy is one of those things that always makes me go, huh, they really did respect him, hell, they admired him, even his fucking enemies. In a heated exchange over army pay, a group of soldiers, tied to Horatio Gates by the way, aimed to meet with Congress and eventually wrote to the Congress, demanding answers and promising further actions as necessary. Now that's a tricky word, actions. I think it was taken kind of as a threat. Basically, in their first address, the soldiers suggested that they might refuse to lay down their arms once peace was affirmed, should their pay not be guaranteed by the Congress. A Congress, by the way, that couldn't levy taxes. This reminds me a lot of the New Model Army after the English Civil Wars. GW was not pleased by this at all especially considering so much of it happened behind his back, and as the war was still raging. But as always, he turned to moderation, expressing disgust in the idea that the army be used against civil authority, that is, the Congress, while simultaneously urging Congress to find a financial solution. 
Even Hamilton himself, who at this time was just George's aide-de-camp, was warning Washington about the threats of unrest. So this is a big deal. What would our general do? In the end, he chose words. In his now famous Newburgh address, Washington said as he drew his spectacles from his pockets, quote, Gentlemen, you must pardon me. I have grown gray in your service and now find myself going blind. Drawing on the loyalty and patriotism that he helped instill in his men, his words were able to bring the would-be insurrection to its knees as he said, quote, This dreadful alternative of either deserting our country in the extremest hour of her distress or turning our arms against it has something so shocking in it that humanity revolts the idea. My God, what can this writer have in view by recommending such measures? Can he be friend to the army? Can he be friend to this country? Rather, is he not an insidious foe? In response, the officers, most of which were now brought to tears, rejected the advances of the Newburgh Address and asked Washington to intercede on their behalf. Of all the mutinies and attacks at his command, this moment posed the greatest threat not only to George Washington's command, but congressional government in its entirety. By some strange cocktail of shame and patriotism, Washington reminded them why they fought and pleaded for patience. In patience, he urged, they, quote, will defeat the insidious designs of our enemies who are compelled to resort from open force to secret artifice. You will give one more distinguished proof of the unexampled patriotism and patient virtue rising superior to the pressure of the most complicated sufferings. This was a moment that, more so than many others, demonstrated Washington's abilities as a leader and guardian of his soon-to-be nation, as well as a true leader of those in his command, a number, by the way, that was about to drastically increase. As the newly freed independent American states, whose first government, by the way, would totally crumble, brought a new constitution into being. So the Constitutional Convention, well, that made a presidency, so it seemed only right to mention it, and given that Tommy J and Johnny A were out of the country and Benny Frank was getting pretty old, the convention needed a little more star power if it was going to be taken seriously. Enter Washington. Probably the reason the whole thing was taken seriously in the first place is because he agreed to be there and give it kind of some semblance of authority. I discussed the Constitution a bit on other episodes, so I won't do it much here, but of course Madison, Hamilton, and Jay write their infamous Federalist Papers, being remembered forever while others like Governor Morris, Roger Sherman, and James Wilson basically get forgotten, even if they did a lot of the work. Unsurprisingly, G.W. hardly spoke at the convention, but his presence was all that was needed, and it must have reminded enough great minds of the Founders' Pantheon that he was the only man for the job as a singular head of state in this new nation they were proposing. If we were going to have a first executive, then it had to be George, and so it was. Now President of the United States of America, with full powers guaranteed to him by the Constitution, George had an impossible task before him. Unlike the princes of Europe and emperors of the East, he had no lineage to rule by, no divine right, no claim to his would-be throne, and yet there were few others that Americans might have followed willingly into their shared and uncertain future as the dust of the revolution finally settled. I mean, even John Adams knew that. And he got number two. Of course, Washington's presidency set countless precedents that presidents have followed throughout U.S. history and still or should follow to this day. Save only FDR, he set the long-standing standard for serving two presidential terms, negotiating international treaties, appointing Supreme Court justices, addressing Congress, giving farewell addresses, and maintaining as much neutrality as possible in foreign affairs. And I highly doubt that Washington would have been sending out daily tweets of his opinions to the masses. Maybe Adams, definitely Jefferson, but not Washington. Again, starting with his success, to put it simply, Washington led the country through its infancy. Every issue was a new one, every mistake was a learning experience, and every success was a stone cast in our country's hopefully everlasting foundation. Plus, he successfully maintained peace with Great Britain and the French government, 
who was in the middle of their own chaotic revolution. He led with moderation on issues like states' rights, slavery, and economics when the unity of the nation was fragile at best. He established a strong cabinet with members like Thomas Jefferson, Henry Knox, and Alexander Hamilton. He oversaw the establishment of America's first national bank and was the only president to lead an army into combat during the Whiskey Rebellion. As president, George used his powers cautiously, exercising his near-absolute and untested veto power only twice. The first was seemingly to uphold the sanctity of the U.S. Constitution, defending its plans for apportionment of representatives to Congress. The second veto was to ensure some semblance of a standing army remain in active service. To me, this restraint was, again, what made Washington the right choice for the job. Although there were safeguards in place to counter excessive veto power, it is unlikely that two-thirds of Congress would ever have gone against GW. The stain of absolute power was at his fingertips, but instead he washed his hands of tyranny completely. During his second term, Washington also signed into law the Naval Act of 1794, commissioning the first federal frigates to be built. And of course, there were many other policies that we just don't have time to go into today. However, there is one political issue that leaves us questioning our patriarch's legacy. Slavery. The Declaration states all men are created equal, but what that looked like in reality was all upper-class landowning white men were created equal. Washington himself even pushed through some policy decisions that actually spat in the face of equality, including admitting the new slave states of Kentucky and Tennessee, signing into law the Federal Fugitive Slave Act, denying citizenship to many black immigrants, and of course he was a slave owner himself since the ripe age of 11, having more than 300 enslaved Africans at his Mount Vernon estate. His government even provided financial aid to our ally France to help with the failed suppression of the Haitian Revolution. The irony, of course, being that Haiti looked to the ideals begotten America as their cause. But still, I'm not sure Washington was an avid supporter of slavery as president, but instead a supporter of unity among the states. He saw the issue of slavery as so divisive and detrimental to the nation's continued harmony that he even neglected to mention it in his famous farewell address, in which he asked Americans to, quote, estimate the immense value of your national union to your collective and individual happiness. And as he said farewell in his closing remarks, George said, in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think probable that I have committed many errors. I'm not sure if Washington meant to include this in his secret list of errors, but I would have to say his policies towards the black American population, enslaved and free, were certainly a shortcoming of his presidency. Washington's presidency, like all, was plagued with many ups and downs, but turning again to Joseph J. Ellis, the historian I chose to read for my research, Quote, there were two distinct creative moments in America's founding, the winning of independence and the invention of nationhood, and Washington was central in both. Without Washington, where would we be? Probably fucking lost. Washington's presidency, however, came to an end with Adams' inauguration. His much-desired retirement to Mount Vernon was immediate, and this is where he really shined brightest as a DGMH great mind, as he decided to focus on having parties, distilling whiskey, and brewing beer. But Washington's retirement would be short, as the French Revolution and threat of war intensified, and he was actually welcomed back, or well-volunteered, or maybe voluntold, hard to tell by the source you read, to be the figurehead of America's army during the Adams administration. He would serve in this position, albeit nominally, until his death. In December 1799, as winter set in, George continued to tend to activities around Mount Vernon, eventually taking ill. From there, his doctors essentially excited his death and made his last days agonizingly painful, as his overseer George Rollins first tended to him while waiting for his doctor, James Crake, who had been the Washington family physician for more than 40 years. 
Over the next few days, pints of blood were let from Washington. The treatments to soothe his throat were so difficult to swallow that Craig nearly suffocated him. Another doctor, Gustavus Brown, was soon called to help and intervene on Washington's behalf, but he took too long to get there. Craig continued to, quote, balance the fluids in his body by letting blood and inducing enema. Essentially, his doctor was killing him, letting pint after pint of blood out of his body and slowly but surely dehydrating him. Finally, they began to induce vomiting, so basically his trained doctors killed him while treating the cold of a 67-year-old man, forcing him to shit and vomit himself as his vampiric doctors drained him of his life force. In his last days, he reassured his friend and Dr. Craig that he was, quote, not afraid to go, and in his last moments, surrounded by friends and family, he died on December 14, 1799. In his will, he emancipated all enslaved Africans he personally owned, but more on that later. In his last conversation with his private secretary, Tobias Lear, he said the following, quote, Have me decently buried, and do not let my body be put in the vault in less than three days after I am dead. As was common at the time, by the way, as he was a little afraid of being buried alive. Hell, they used to tie bells to people's feet, just in case. As Lear affirmed that his wishes would be followed, he uttered his final words, "'Tis well." He was finally laid to rest where I believe he always wanted to be, Mount Vernon. So let's wrap this up as we move to the scale of greatness. I would like to close my evaluation of Washington with some wise words from another great mind of his time, John Adams. Writing some nine years after Washington's death in a letter to his close friend Benjamin Rush, Adams commented on the talents that belonged to Washington that made him so, let's say, great, especially in the absence of a formal education. Adams remarked, quote, Self-taught or book-learned in the arts, our hero was much indebted to the talents of his immense elevation above his fellows. Talents, you will say, what talents? I answer, one, a handsome face, that is a talent I can prove by the authority of a thousand instances in all ages. Two, a tall stature, three, an elegant form, four, graceful attitudes and movement, five, a large imposing fortune consisting of a great landed estate. 6. Washington was a Virginian. This is the equivalent of five talents. Virginian geese are all swans. 7. Washington was... I'm sorry, that's just funny. 7. Washington was preceded by favorable anecdotes. The English had used him ill in the expedition of Braddock. They had not done justice to his bravery and good counsel. They had exaggerated and misrepresented his defeat and capitulation, which interested the pride as well as compassion of Americans in his favor. 8. He possessed the gift of silence. This I esteem as one of the most precious talents. Ironically, one that Adams didn't really have himself, but still. 9. He had great self-command. 10. Whenever he lost his temper, as he did sometimes, either love or fear in those about him induced them to conceal his weakness from the world. Here you see I have made out 10 talents without saying a word about reading, thinking, or writing. So that's John Adams on George. So let's continue on to my assessment. In the end, believing full well that the abolition of slavery was the only logical way to successfully complete the unfinished revolution, he qu Washington proclaimed, quote, There is not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted of the abolition of slavery. However, he put the security of the nation over his personal ambitions and governed with poise and resolve. He was and is forevermore a symbol of American freedom, unity, and national pride. Now, before we continue on, anyone looking for more on our subjects could very quickly turn to Mount Vernon's website to learn all there is about Washington and even Mrs. Phyllis. On an academic note, I would point you towards Joseph J. Ellis's His Excellency George Washington or Alexis Coe's You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. Both are quite enjoyable. 
For more information on Phyllis Wheatley, I would strongly suggest first reading her own literature and then picking up Vincent Coretta's Phyllis Wheatley, Biography of a Genius in Bondage. Not going to say Coretta's my favorite historian, but still. The book is good. Now let's move to the scale of greatness. First, drink. Here's the original rating. I won't be rating this Yingling Light on this round. So I'm going to stick with my rating from Flying Fox. So let's start with taste. As I cling to the last drops of my Flying Fox Winter Vermouth, I find myself wanting another bottle. The spring vintage is every bit as good and delightful with a slice of apple, believe it or not, and I have no doubt that the summer and fall will bring great taste and even better memories, if I can manage to remember them this time around. Serving it chilled will get you five points for taste, and on a side note, the summer and fall? Eh, summer's fine, fall kinda sucks. On to returnability. I am returning to this right now. I am hoping to return every season, and I always return with great friends. You try it, and you will too. An easy six points. On to price, which probably should be moved before returnability, but still, coming in at $35 a bottle, it is worth every penny. You should never skimp on good booze, when the flavor and uniqueness are perfectly blended as they are here. 35 Washingtons is really nothing for something this tasty. Five points for price. With a total of 16 out of 18 points, Flying Fox's Winter Vermouth gets 6 crowns, even in the fall. On to our great mind. Let's start with his accomplishments. Washington may not have came, saw, and conquered like our last great mind, but he did create a successful military force out of nothing that he used to secure American independence. He essentially defined the role of President of the United States of America, and he used that position to maintain unity in our new nation, always with reservation. He did not let his failures define him, and in fact learned from them. And on that note, George accomplished a hell of a lot. Five points. But how was George as a leader? Well, that is a multi-pronged question. After, as a military leader, Washington wasn't the best, but as president, he was exactly what we needed. Hell, even as a military commander, he seemed to be exactly what we needed in the end as well. It took a leader like Washington to lead us through the equally messy revolution and independence, through the fog of war and our newfound freedom. So yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say it. George gets six points as a leader. If you can learn from your mistakes and be a good leader, both on the battlefield and in the White House, which doesn't come often these days, I'm going to say you get the full six. Entertainment. <laughs> That's even trickier. I do hope that Washington turned out to be as interesting a subject for you as he was for me. In many ways, his story is America's story, failings and all, and a fascinating one it was. I gave him a solid five points for entertaining me during the original release, but I'm actually going to bump that up to six because I really enjoyed redoing this episode, which is surprising as I put it off for months. So originally, he had 16 out of 18 points, but since I've given him this bump for the remastering, and 6 points for entertainment, that gives him that new point and he leaves the show with 17 out of 18 points and a very rare 6 crowns, but let's see if he'll hold on to them as it's time to turn to the piece of shit curve. The present day hasn't been overly kind to George, and that is typically for one specific reason, he owned and enslaved Africans. Now I did comment on this during the show, saying quote, I am not going to spend a bunch of time bashing Washington for being a stereotypical 17th century Virginian. The man owned slaves, but really, throughout this episode, I kind of judged him for it anyways. Was he a bit of a hypocrite? Absolutely, but I honestly think that my assessment of him has been pretty fair, and I also think that hypocrisy does factor still into the piece of shit curve, and we shouldn't forget his actions against Native Americans. Some have called Washington's desire to seize territory as early as 1763 for himself and 1789 for his nation as a, quote, lifelong pursuit of Native land. 
Historian Colin Calloway, author of The Indian World of George Washington, notes, From cradle to grave, Washington inhabited a world built on the labor of African people in the land of a dispossessed Indian people. He makes clear that Washington thought that American success and growth would come at the cost of Indian land, but the price was uncertain. Washington thought it best to pay tribes for their land, but was more than willing to take them by force if needed. Again, turning to Callaway, quote, Indian nations challenged the growth of the nation. Of course, in discussing all of this, I am reminded of the somewhat recent controversy of Victor uh, Artinoff's Life of Washington Mural. Now, this isn't so recent anymore, but when I first recorded this piece of shit rating anyway, it, it was. So what should we do here? Washington was pretty upfront, certainly an American hero, and like Jefferson and Hamilton, who also backtracked on their hopes, morals, and dreams, was bound by the fragile structure of the new nation. He's certainly on the wrong side of history when it comes to slavery, but I think Washington's position was so unique that the situation becomes very, I hate to use this word, complex. Compared to Hamilton, maybe he was a little bit of a piece of shit, maybe not. Compared to Jefferson, Louis XIV, other monarchs like Philip II, the Catherines, Nappy III, even Winnie Churchill, and of course Stalin, he was a fucking saint, so I'm very torn here. So let's do a quick shot. Today I... So today I'm chasing this episode with a shot of cheap sour mash whiskey from Lone Hand Distillery in Kentucky. I did it last time I brought up the piece of shit curve and I actually just did it again. Originally, I said it was not very good, but I have had worse, and there are more expensive brands out there, and that's actually not true. This shit fucking sucks. I literally just tried some and had to pause the recording to cough and rinse and get better whiskey. But back to Washington. I know the man of his time argument has faded from the realm of acceptable phrases, but that really is what he was, a man of his time and an exceptional one, but flawed. He had his faults and maybe he could have done more. I think it was difficult for him to make any moves against slavery as president. And I am not convinced that he truly wanted to. I mean, the man owned a lot of people. And he only freed them after he didn't quote need them anymore. And of course he was sure to keep those he quote needed to care for his wife. I actually posed this question to the wisest group of people I know, the bedrock of this show, teachers. I got mixed feedback, but I was not alone in one sentiment that has been stuck in the back of my mind. I have given George a lot of credit for the precedence he set as leader and president of the United States, for refusing the crown, protecting democracy, maintaining neutrality, stepping down, so on and so forth and in doing nothing to better the situation regarding slavery and, furthermore, Native Americans during his presidency, he set the tone, the precedent, that the future presidents didn't have to address it either. And many of them wouldn't, but it is worth noting that Jefferson, well, he did. I think Washington's position as the first leader of a new, fragile nation was particularly unique, but he basically passed the buck to the next generation, and they would continue to follow Washington's lead for the next 70 years. I can't say if the good outweighs the bad, but the bad really sucked. So on this piece of shit curve rating, I think George falls into the people-owning principled great mind that failed to act. Regardless of his unique situation, he is right there with Catherine the Great, save only that he seemed to gravitate towards slavery while in power, not away from it. I will be falling in line with the majority of those surveyed who said to deduct between 1 and 3 points and only deduct 2 POS points. Given the boost that I gave him earlier, that knocks George down to 15 out of 18 points, and he narrowly escapes with six crowns intact, and I think that might make him the truly only one to do so on the show. Well, that's it. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode of The Chaser, where we will cover one of the important historical happenings buried deep within Washington's story, and of course, have another drink. 
Also, if you're listening to this for the first time as episode three, then get ready to also tune in for our first segment of Shots Heard Around the World, in which me and a guest or two take two or more great minds and square them off against one another for a crown of greatness. Maybe another crown for Washington to turn down. The first one will be the Battle of the Lucky Fools, Hernan Cortez versus George Washington. If you're listening to this as a seasoned DGMH drinker and listener, then you know all about shots, I hope, and you know all about a twist of psych, again, I hope. If not, there are two different rounds of shots on Cortez and Washington out there for you to go and listen to. Plus, Sherry and I went back and did a psych episode on GW toward the end of season one. Check that shit out. Fuck, this is getting to be a long recording, so let's wrap it up. If you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, then please consider leaving the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at DGMH History, and be sure to join in the conversation over on the DGMH Facebook group. Plenty of fun chats and memes shared there. If you are all caught up and looking for even more DGMH, or just love the show, then we hope you'll consider supporting the show over on the DGMH Patreon page. Their listeners can get access to even more great content, including bonus psych and shots conversations, pre-game chats, extra moments with Mr. DGMH, another extra moment with Mr. DGMH on the 30 Years War, plus Cullen Chats China, where Cullen chats with me about China's rich history, and Pete Chats Portugal, where I chat with Cullen about Portugal's nearly forgotten history by most of the historical community. And now, a moment with my high school history teacher has been added to the arsenal of Patreon land, uh, where Cullen talks with us about some of his favorite history subjects. I literally don't know if I have the ability nor time to produce more content than that for all of you, but I hope you'll at least go check it out. Hopefully the audio on this one was better. I know it fucking had to be. The first one was awful, so awful I had to be taken down. Either way, it's finally done. Washington, great mind number two, the winner of so many crowns of greatness on this show. He is back in the show run, and that makes me oh so fucking happy. As this is a remastering that is airing towards the end of Season 3, I figured we might as well jump down the beaver hole for a second. Although George Washington was never meant to be a showcase in Season 3's Rise and Fall theme, I feel like I have to comment on it. Did George rise? Well, not from nothing. He certainly had an edge up on others, but he was certainly never destined to lead anything like an entire country. Had the revolution not happened, he may have gone down as a military commander of limited significance. Had the revolution happened and failed, he might have gone down as a martyr of sorts, even sparking future rebellions. Who fucking knows? Still, George was one of the first to rise to the top of the American democracy. His legacy has its questionable points. His footprint, though, is unquestionable. He is in every American's life, policy, practice, the fucking quarter in your pocket. He's everywhere, even if you don't pay attention to it. And he didn't really fall at all, so I guess there's really a reason why he wouldn't have been part of this season's theme. As we wrap this up, though, I have to say in the early days of this podcast, I guess I tried to avoid sneaking in my opinions, which have become less and less subtle, and I certainly didn't say fuck in the show when Washington first aired. I clearly fixed one of those issues, now let's fix the other. George Washington was necessary. Good, great, who really gives a flying fuck? The temperament of the man, and yes, it was going to be a man. There was no alternative in 1789, no America that would be governed, no America that would have done anything different than elect a land-owning white rich man to the highest office. It fucking sucks, but of course that's the sad truth. I teach history, not fairy tales. Anyways, he was necessary. You can hate him, you can love him, you can venerate him, but anyone else in that position would have grabbed the fucking crown so fast and ruled with an iron fist. George didn't. He may have been the strong man on a white horse, sometimes literally on a white horse, who rode in and saved the day, but then he went home, or at least tried to. Boulevards, Cromwells, and others did the exact opposite, but George, he didn't rule, he governed. He led the nation, he nurtured it, he was America in those prepubescent years, and he really didn't fuck up. 
Holding true to the show's title, let us have one final drink to the foundingest father of them all, George Washington. Bad general, bad teeth, badass president, but not as badass as Teddy, but that will be a story for another day. So to you, GW. As far as remasterings go, this was fun for me. A little long, but fun. To revisit such a powerhouse mind on the show after three seasons of examining so many other great figures. To know all the brawls and debates you were going to go on and win. To have learned so much about you as this show has progressed, I'm glad you're back with us. But I think it's important to always remember the flaws. To acknowledge Washington's and all the Founders' failings. We need not treat them as untouchable deities in a pantheon to be worshipped. Instead, they were brave, bold individuals, but still just men and women, flawed like all of us. The founders, George, they led the call for freedom from tyranny, in the end choosing cooperation, not subjugation. Yet they continued to oppress millions. When looking at GW, you can't, you shouldn't discuss one without the other. In examining these great minds, we get a model. In learning from their evils, their failings, we inform and better ourselves as we address even correct the misdoings of those that came before. That is what the founders were doing. They set the example, they lit the flame, but the torch is each generation's to carry. In the end, greatness is one thing, but shittiness is certainly another. And I have found in just about every case on this show that all great minds in history seem to have a bit of both. Cheers! Thanks so much for listening. Please check out the Drinks with Great Minds in History podcast and find out why it has so many loyal listeners, including Mrs. History's train wrecks, with all that that implies. Cheers! <laughs>